Well, good morning, Fellowship of Faith. Again, we are so glad that you're live streaming in with us today. Hey, today is questions you never thought you could ask in church. There has been such an overwhelming response of questions that have come in over the last couple of weeks that we've been doing this, that today what I'm going to be doing is batting a lot of cleanup. I want to get to as many questions as I can that those of you who have texted things in last week and the week before have asked, but I'll tell you, live texting is still open today. We're going to flash a number on the screen for you. It's 815-314-0363. What we invite you to do in your homes is take out your phone right now, and any question you have on God, theology, the Bible, Christianity, its intersection with life, figuring out how to follow Jesus in this world, or for that matter, simply fellowship of faith and our community, we want you to ask those questions. You don't have to be embarrassed of them. You don't have to be, you don't have to hide from them, be ashamed of them, think that you're going to get judged. We think church needs to be a place where people are asking questions and where we can come alongside each other in our times of questions and struggles and doubts and wonderment to help each other along on the journey. So start your questions coming in even as I speak, 815 314 0-3-6-3-8-1-5-3-1-4-0-F-O-F. Now, as that's starting to auto-populate, I want to let you know about some really cool things that are coming our way as a church. Guys, can you believe this? Next Sunday, in-person worship resumes. All right, so let's give it up for that in your homes, right? Starting next Sunday, we shift from the 10 a.m. live stream only to 9 and 10.30 service times, both in person and both will be live streamed. So whether you want to come in or still watch from your homes, it is completely up to you. But know that we will be open here on the campus next week for you to come in person if you'd like. Later on this week, I'm going to shoot an e-news out. It'll have all the safety protocol, all the things to be aware of all the little like variations and nuances and changes that will come to that. But guys, we cannot wait. We are looking so forward for you to come here and just not only be together, but just to kind of see what we've done with the place and, uh, and just soak in. It has been four months since we've been able to do this together and we can't wait for you to come out. Not only that, next week, I'm not talking tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow, this is July 13th, we have got Bible Boot Camp here at Fellowship of Faith. Better put, Bible Boot Camp virtually in your homes from here at Fellowship of Faith. You know, if you've got kids, toddler through fifth grade, go to our website, fellowshipoffaith.org. Go to the children's ministry page. You'll get all the information you need. You'll find registration links right there. And um, the information pickup is next Saturday from 10 to 2, but the website will give you that info as well. Well, guys, last week I had the chance to talk to you about the First Wave Project, this first wave of a number of things we think God is sending our way as a church to better reach our community, have a bigger impact on discipleship, and ease our space issues that we've been facing. I want to put two things on your grid. One, we are having living room meetings here at FOF, little gatherings just to answer your questions and let you see firsthand what this project is going to entail. We have one today at noon. So hey, you're watching at home and you want to come here, just show up. Come today at noon, about a half hour, 40 minutes, we'll walk you through. If that doesn't work, come back on Tuesday. That's this, like 48 hours, right? 
Tuesday, this coming Tuesday at 6 p.m., and we're having another living room at that point. Now, we're having a congregational voters meeting on this. Mark your calendar, July 19th. That's a Sunday, high noon, in this room right here. We will live stream it as well, but we encourage you to come out for that. This is something we think the whole congregation needs to come together on. We want your voice. We want your vote. We want to uh, walk through this journey together, so mark your calendars for that as well. All right, enough announcements. Let's get to the good stuff, and I am going to bat clean up on some questions that came in from last week. This one came in after Sunday, and I love this. I so appreciate it. It is an errata. I led you astray last week, all right? And here it is. As usual, we enjoyed the church service this past Sunday. Lots of interesting questions and answers. That being said, I'm still looking forward to the opening on the 12th. One more thing. I would like to make a correction to one of your answers. The first baptism at the new FOF, or yeah, at the new FOF at Riverwood School was not Garrett Gilland and Gina Wagner like I told you last week. It was, in fact, Ethan Schmidt, the son of Erica and Russ Schmidt, and the grandson of Don and Del Hansen. Thank you, Del, for setting me straight. And uh, this had taken place in late September or early October during our first year of existence. This family had been with us from the beginning, so sorry to dethrone you out there, Garrett and, uh, and uh, Gina, but no, nah, silver medals to both of you. We have got Ethan here lined up as our gold medalist, first baptized. So rock on, Ethan. Hope you're still walking with the Lord. Hope all is good there. And uh, thanks for the point on that from uh, last week. All right. Let me go to a couple others now. Here was one. And remember that last week was Father's Day. My sons disagree about their father, who divorced me in 2012. One son wants a relationship. One son doesn't want a relationship. Meanwhile, my son's relationship is suffering. Is there a Bible story or verse that could help them through this? And yeah, yeah, I'm so glad you asked. There are a lot of passages that talk about the relationship between fathers and sons, some which show it in good and positive ways, some which show it in horrible ways because the Bible isn't afraid of the reality of what life in this world is like. Maybe there is no better relationship between father and son to look at than the relationship between Jesus and his heavenly father. And don't overlook that. Mine into the ways that Jesus sought to enact and interact with his heavenly father. Yet even Jesus would call out to his father at times, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's natural for there to be tension and hardship between a father and a son and... I can get where both your sons are coming from. One, motivated to forgive, to reconcile. Having that relationship with his father even though he divorced you. The other looking to protect you. Rightfully angry, maybe, about what his dad did and chose to do and not wanting to just pretend like everything is okay. Look, I want to speak to you right now who texted this in more than your children. How do you as mom navigate this relationship with these two sons. Passages I encourage you to look at are things like Ephesians 6, Colossians chapter 3. It's more about principles at this point than stories to mimic or copy. 
principles that talk about bearing with each other, learning to be patient with each other, giving each other the necessary breathing room that we need and not holding anger against those who aren't interacting the way that we want, how to come alongside someone who's suffering, start in those two places. And if there's anything more that we can do as a church to kind of speak directly into some of the particularities of this, please email me direct and uh, let's keep that conversation going. All right, how about this? Why does the book of Esther not mention God? Little, uh, little piece of biblical arcana here, but if you didn't know, Esther is the only book in the Bible that never actually mentions God. That, that, that's kind of only partially true because it depends how you read Song of Solomon as well. There's a text variant in Song of Solomon that puts God's name in. So depending on what text tradition over there, there might be two books. But Esther, nah, hands down, does not mention God. So the question, why? I don't know. But I tell you, people who have written about this and studied the book of Esther have made a lot of this. Some argue that it's actually an intentional move by the author to show how in the reality of life, we don't see God visibly around us, or at least not normally and too often. In most of life, you can navigate through without explicitly seeing God or hearing his voice at all. But what Esther seems to show is how God is always behind the scenes, behind the curtain, if you will. Even if out of eye shot, he's there and ever-present orchestrating, protecting, guiding, influencing, and leading. And it may just be that the author was trying to convey that. Or it could be simply like this, that the way of Christ is not just mentioning the way of Christ. To truly be Christian is what you live and do, not just what you say. That some of the most Christian songs I have ever heard never mention the name of God or Jesus, but they are immersed in the way of Jesus and his worldview. Some of the most theologically rich movies I have ever seen don't mention the name of God or Jesus, but they drip with his presence. Sometimes I wonder if we get hung up on whether something mentions it or not rather than the substance of what it is. So hopefully that helps steer you on Esther. A little bit. All right. Here's one. Why did we change our logo? Now, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we, we kind of started unrolling this new imprint, this new watermark and logo that we're starting to put on things, especially this first wave project. So why did we actually even do this? Because the reality is we love our old logo. It's part of us, it's who we are, it kind of marks us and it works, and that ain't going away. But there's a couple of reasons why. One, everything needs a spruce up every now and again. Even if the paint in your walls looks good, it's still good to change the color at least every 20 years, would you agree? And so there is something always healthy to giving fresh expression to who we are, remembering our roots, but then getting us kind of like, ah, Reset a little bit again. But here's more of the reason why. As much as we love our old logo, and this is surprising, it doesn't work in circles. 
The logo is a circle, but it doesn't actually work in circles. And the reason why is because it has these tails that hang off the top and the bottom. And so the logo in wording has to get so small that you can't actually use it in a circle font. Not only that, we got some mock-ups done on signs. And when we put our logo on the sign, either the wording Fellowship of Faith was so small that it was unreadable, or the logo was so like, it just looked bad. We redesigned our website. It was in horrible need of a reboot. The old logo just didn't look good on it. All of these things started coming together alongside the idea of going, coming out of COVID-19, what better time to kind of remember that we're renewing something, refreshing something, not just continuing on life as normal, but taking a new step with God and a visual will help point the way on that. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight into the new guy that you're going to see plastered around. Here's one. How old is the world? When the Bible talks about the world, it will talk about it in two different ways. It can talk about earth as we know it, or it can talk about what we would call the universe or the cosmos. So in John 3.16, when it says, for God so loved the world, the Greek word is actually cosmos. So maybe a better translation would be, for God so loved all creation, or God so loved the universe that he gave his own and only son. So I got to ask a question to your question. What do you mean by the world? Well, if you mean the cosmos, scientists would say it's just shy of 14 billion, about 13.8 billion years old. Do they know that for sure? No, it's their guess, and it's an educated one. When they look at Mother Earth, they would say about 4.5 billion years old. And at this point, you're probably giving or taking a billion, you know? Do they know that for sure? No, it's an educated guess. Young Earth creationists, young Earth Christians will often go a very different way with it. They'll say, we don't really know, but... I don't know, several thousand years, maybe 10,000 years, give or take. Do they know? No, but it's an educated guess based on the data you choose to look at and the data you choose to ignore. It's really an unanswered question in the Bible. And so for me to speak into it from a biblical point of view, well, there's far more variation in answers that can be biblically grounded and scientifically aware than just one lockstep way of looking at it. I can tell you this, I'm 46 years old. It's at least that old. <laughs> How about this? What's your view on faith healing? We all know what this is about, right? We've seen We've seen it at its worst, where the tent ministry comes to town or a televangelist with his private jet asks for money, and if you just believe enough, I'll lay my hands on you and all will be well. Many of us have also seen it at its best. God working through sincere people to bring for lack of a better term, supernatural healing and presence to others. And many in our community will even bear witness to having experienced that. So, a couple of principles to help steer you through this. One, God heals 
People don't. Faith healing is not about the strength of your faith. So, if you've prayed for God to heal you and you still have cancer, that does not necessarily mean that your faith is weak or absent or you're not trying hard enough or anything like that. Sometimes God chooses to heal. Sometimes God chooses to withhold that. That's hard. But I do know this. Jesus went around healing people, allow me the term, miraculously. He empowered his apostles to go around healing people miraculously. He told his disciples, you will do greater things than these, and the testimony of the book of Acts is his followers, at times, healing people. I love what James chapter 5 even says. If any of you are sick, he should repent of his sins and call the elders in to lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. And James has like no qualms saying, and they will be healed. Like I want him to qualify that a little bit. It's like, dude, it's kind of putting yourself in the pocket there. That's what it says. You know, God invites you to seek him for healing. And God invites you to pray over people for healing. Don't worry if you've got the power. Don't worry if you're doing it right. Don't worry if the mojo's all correct. That's getting you off task. Seek God, and if he chooses to work through that, you might be surprised at what he does more often than we give him credit for. At the same time, don't let yourself be duped by someone telling you the reason you're not healed is because there's something wrong with you. All right, hopefully that helps you steer, steer through it. Is there such a thing as a righteous lie? If you lied to save a life, is that still considered a sin? I do believe there is such a thing as a righteous lie, and no, I don't believe that would be considered a sin. This was my dad's favorite analogy. If the Nazis are knocking on your door in World War II, Germany or Holland, say, are you harboring Jews? And you were. Does morality demand you to say, yeah, I am? The greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And unfortunately, in a fallen, broken world, that might mean moments or instances of dishonesty to protect another human life. Now, as soon as I open this door, I know, I, I know what I'm opening this to because we all have a propensity to rationalize and justify our actions and, oh, I don't want to hurt his feelings, so I'll just lie. Oh, I don't really want to tell her that she's fat, so I'll just lie. I don't really want to tell her. We've all been there, right? We've got to be really careful and always pushing ourselves to honesty at all costs, especially to ourselves. But sometimes when our honesty means the destruction of another human being, no, I think God wants us to love that human being more than our devotion to absolute honesty, if I can put it that way. It sounds weird, I know. Welcome to the mess we call life. Here's one. How do you talk to someone who says they know Jesus, but it is not Jesus, the Son of God? Jesus is popular today. There's even books called, like, uh, this is one title I like, I believe it's Dan Kimball. They love Jesus but hate the church. 
There's a lot of people who are interested in Jesus, fascinated by Jesus, attracted to Jesus, even though they don't like what we have come to call Christianity. And the danger with our approach to Jesus is the same danger that people have in their approach to God. We have a propensity to make God in our own image. And so we have a propensity to make Jesus in our own image. Mystics want Jesus to be a mystic. Revolutionaries want Jesus to be a revolutionary. Loners want Jesus to be the maverick who's leading the way, saving the world by his own strength. Stoics want Jesus to be stern and staid. And, and every other expression of Jesus has been out there. There's Buddhist Jesus and Muslim Jesus and everything in between. The way I encourage you to have a conversation about Jesus is not to take for granted that they mean what you think they mean or what you mean when you say Jesus. Did you follow that mess? Ask them what they think about Jesus, what they like about him, what strikes them most. Just, just have a normal conversation, not worrying about having to defend, not worrying about having to correct them, not getting nervous if they say something different. Let them share and know that it's a safe place to share. But conversations do go two ways. And rather than seek to correct them, then just describe why you believe what you believe about Jesus. And dear God, I hope that that's rooted in the biblical story. Check yourself to make sure that you have the right idea of Son of God too. And share those things. And hopefully you've opened up a conversation that continues where faith can be birthed and Christ can reveal himself in the truest ways. The Apostles' Creed is a great summary, by the way, if you just need a starting block. Here's one. Can Lucifer or demons hear our thoughts? Man, doesn't it seem that way sometimes? Like, and straight up, doesn't it seem sometimes like you've got a closer intimate relationship with the devil than with God? Like you kind of feel like you hear him and feel him and know him's kind of stirring around in there than, than God who feels a little bit more absent. You know, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But I do think there's a tendency among many to give Lucifer and demons far more credit and far more powerful or more power than they deserve. Now, don't get me wrong. The last thing I want to do is pick a back alley fight with Lucifer or a demon. But sometimes I think we start to make them all powerful. Sometimes I start to wonder if we think they're omniscient, all-knowing, and can read our thoughts. They're not God. To what degree they can read us like a good poker player can read us or get inside our heads, I just don't know. I just simply know that the Bible tells us to stand strong against them and the strength of Christ and of the Lord, wherever we're feeling pressure or temptation or torment, and that God's promise is that they will eventually flee because of Christ's power who's with me. Hopefully that helps. All right, I'm almost done with two weeks ago. Did sin first occur with the fall of man in the Garden of Eden or when Satan rebelled against God and became a fallen angel. The first recorded sin in the Bible is Adam and Eve taking of that fruit of the tree and eating it against God's explicit 
command. But the very fact that you have the serpent in the story as a tempter clearly trying to lead them counter the way of God, deceive them from the way of God, entice them into things other than God, certainly speaks that there was a warpedness in the world already. Never describes how it happened, where it happened. People try to see allusions in Isaiah and Ezekiel and even Revelation, but it's, it's hints at best. It does seem to say that the fall of the one that gets called Lucifer or the Satan did happen first, but the explicit nature of how that played out kind of remains a mystery. Guys, we caught up. We caught up from two weeks ago. Here we go into some from last week. Is there a Bible study for weight loss at FOF? Yeah, who wants that one, right? Those are the kind of Bible studies we like to buy the books for and then put them on the shelf, aren't we? No, you know, we don't currently have a Bible study for weight loss or a, a program or anything like that for weight loss at FOF, but man, it would be great to, and I think there's a lot of people that would resonate with it. Because what I found is that weight loss and fitness is kind of, it's a sin issue in many ways. A lot of us struggle with gluttony. A lot of us struggle with laziness. These are, of course, acceptable sins in the world today. But you know what? They're real sins. They're not the way God wants us to be. And if we've learned anything as humans, we need each other supporting each other, holding each other accountable, seeking God's wisdom and help through it. So, look, I don't know if you're looking for something like that. We'd love you to start it. Reach out to me if you're willing. We'll kind of show you some ways you could build a group around it and let's see if you can get any traction with it or a Biggest Loser contest or, you know, anything like that. Take it from there. Great question. Okay. Here's one. I'm in for the expansion. This is the first wave expansion. We've been talking about the mezzanine project and some other things that we've shared the last couple of weeks. So I'm in for the expansion, but can't give much money toward it. Is it responsible for me to vote for doing it? If you believe in it, yes. If you agree with it, yes. If you're willing to get behind it, Yes, for some of us, God has blessed us in this time with plenty and some with just a little. You said you can't give much money. Great, great, wrestle with God. If you believe in it and like it, give what you can. Give out of a spirit of generosity, out of sacrifice within the means that God has given you and whether that's a litter or a lot, doesn't matter. I remember the story where Jesus is sitting in the temple and all the wealthy people are coming by, dropping in lavish gifts to support the temple. And the disciples are, wow, look at what they give. It's a natural reaction. And then this poor widow comes by and drops in a couple of pennies. And Jesus is like, those two pennies were worth more to her than the great wealth of these rich people who were giving out of their excess. What she did is far more blessed. Yeah. I think in good conscience you can support it, whether you can give a lot or even just a little. Now, before I turn to some of the uh, live ones today, I want to read one more, because I just love it when cantankerous people, and yeah, I'm teasing you right now, but uh, 
I appreciate this and I really like what you did. This is more of a comment than a question. The way of Jesus is hard, you say. For the last several weeks with this series, I've been saying following Jesus is hard and it's messy and it's confusing. The way of Jesus is hard, you say. But Jesus says, take up my yoke and my burden is light. Can't have it both ways. I love that. That's great. But, yeah, you can. Because the same Jesus that says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, is the exact same Jesus in the exact same gospel that says, take up your cross and follow me. And I don't think that's easy. And I don't think that he intended it to be understood as easy. This is where people have difficulty with the Bible, where it seems to say contradictory things. But if you think about life, all of life is holding intention, contradictory things. The mistake people make with the Bible is when they take one verse and construct an entire worldview around that one verse and that one verse alone. Jesus wants you to hear more than just Matthew 11, just like he wants you to hear more than Luke 14. He wants you to hear all of what he says, and the way of Christ and the Spirit of God is wisdom in how to bring those things together. So yes, I would agree from one perspective Of course I believe Jesus when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in many ways, it is such a refreshing ease over a religion of working to please God. But in another perspective, following Jesus and receiving his free gift will cost you everything. That's hard. At least it's hard for me. And hard for everyone who I think has been willing to be honest with me about their own spiritual journey. So kind of hold those two in tension. Let's go to some today. Is it possible to transfer LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, membership from a church in your home state to a different one in another state in which you don't live? It's up to the church. There is a process, and it was more practiced a generation ago than it is today, where people who would move from one Missouri Synod church to another could just kind of like say, hey, send a letter over there, and they would transfer them in. But in this day and age, you're going to find that most churches operate membership their own way. We certainly do here at Fellowship of Faith, and most other churches do in truth as well, where they're going to ask that you go through their membership process and not just get a letter of transfer sent. So what you want to do is you want to check with the church that you're going to, meaning not the one that you're leaving, but the one that's going to be receiving, the one that you're checking out and possibly going to become a part of. Talk to their pastor or secretary or someone on staff. They'll let you know the exact protocol for how that will work for you. Here's another Thoughts on open versus closed communion. Yeah, I have thoughts on open and closed communion, and they are good ones. (laughs) All right. Here's one. Has anyone from FOF succumbed to COVID-19? Well, it depends what you mean by succumbed. We have an active database of about a 1,000 people. 
Some who are very actively connected with our church and some who are very loosely connected with our church. Some are connected to our church through a live stream kind of thing alone, and maybe you see them once in a blue moon, whose, whose whereabouts we don't really know that well. So, so I can't speak authoritatively on this, but I don't know of anyone who has died in FOF from COVID-19. But I do know of five families of people connected here who since February or March have gotten sick. And the good news has been that in those cases, the majority were mild or even non-symptomatic. There have been two where there's been someone who goes here and it's her son, someone who goes here and it was her mother-in-law, who were hospitalized and taken sick but have since recovered and are doing better. Uh, but for others, no, but it's been a far, a far minority of our community who has tested positive or gotten sick at all. So praise God for that, right? And uh, keep praying for that because it kind of feels like it's done, isn't it? But it isn't yet. And God needs us to keep fighting in prayer and reaching out and caring for people in the midst of this. All right. How about this? <laughs> Has the drummer, not today's, Alec, considered getting a haircut? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Ask him next time you see him, all right? Hey, Alec, love the hair, dude. Love the hair. How about this? <laughs> Whose number is this? I don't, okay, I don't even know. Fellowship of Faith has a history of getting hot interns. The new interns are also smoking hot. What's in the water? And do they have boyfriends? You know, Sam Mergel is going to be with us again next week. Reagan Gadini was here today. Reagan, um, where you at? Where you at? You got a boyfriend, Reagan? Reagan does not have a boyfriend. Reagan is single. I will speak on behalf of her as her dad that she is not available, but she is single and does not have a boyfriend. How's it feel to be smoking hot, Reagan? Reagan says it feels good. Sam, Sam, you can ask her next week, and uh, I can't tell you if Sam has a boyfriend or not, but uh, something is definitely in the water, all right? <laughs> Here's one. Are demons just an analogy for our sins in the Bible? No, I don't believe so. I believe Jesus speaks too clearly and the New Testament speaks too clearly that it sees, that it sees what we call demons as a literal reality. This doesn't mean everything we see portrayed in Hollywood is true, and this doesn't mean that all the ways we try to conjure up what we think they're about is accurate, but no, the Bible definitely speaks of other spiritual forces at work in this world, and some that are counter to God, not equal with God, not as powerful as God, not fundamentally even completely out of God's control, though God does not approve of what they do, but it does speak of demons as a reality, not just some superstitious thing from ages past when people weren't as enlightened. And I think we do a disservice to ourselves when we put such scientific blinders on that we're only allowing ourselves to see the universe from one narrow perspective and blocking out other realities that the Bible says are in play. All right, let me do a little bit more cleanup. 
Where specifically in the Bible can we look during all the craziness going on, mostly related to the political stuff? What does God say about these polarizing situations? You know, obviously God doesn't speak into the particular nuances of the political mayhem that's kind of been the growing way, not just in the last year, but really through the 21st century and truth be told, well before that. It gives principles. It talks about how no matter what, we need to honor and even submit to our governing authorities, even if we don't like them and agree with them. It talks about how we're called to the way of God first, even if that means disobedience to the state, and to accept that as the cross we have to carry. Hard, isn't it? It talks about the way that we're supposed to be kind and compassionate towards each other, and how we're supposed to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. It says a lot of things that are not kind of the things that we often want to hear. Start maybe with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It'll take you like 15 minutes max to read. and Let that just kind of mess up your life. And see maybe how that can even just start paving the way in trying to be a voice of patience and calmness, of mercy and justice, with ears that are quicker to listen than mouths that are quicker to speak, yeah, I hear your frustration in it, though. I do. All right. Paul says, I do things I do not want to do and fail to do the things I should. Oh, what a wretched sinner I am. My spiritual discipline is miserable. I try, but I am a consistent failure. You are in good company. Next Sunday, if you come here and just start asking people, and you get them to be honest with you, you know? And you start asking people, really, how, how strong is your devotional life? And to what degree does it seem to be more marked by falling short or even failure versus wild intimate times or success, if we can use that language? You're going to find you're in good company. Welcome to being a mortal, frail, corrupt human being. It's exactly what Paul is hitting. Yes, and don't we hate it? Because we know what we want. We know the good that we want, but we just don't do it. For those of you unfamiliar with the whole kind of discussion here, I, I want to encourage you, read Romans chapter 7 today. It is the coolest, most insightful psychological peace on the human condition, I swear, that's ever been penned in human history. It talks about the war that I think we all have inside ourselves, the, the conflict and the division even within our own souls. And this is what's so amazing about God is that no matter how many times we fail, he still loves us. No matter how many times we blow it, like, come on, come on, I'm with you. Let's keep going. No matter how many times we're beating up on ourselves, he's sitting there right with us until we kind of work through it again going, hey, this doesn't change anything between us. Man, it's that kind of God that gives us so much freedom to make mistake after mistake, to try and fail and try and fail. It's kind of the story of our lives. I mean, you know, on my tombstone, David Gadini, 
born 1974, died, well, I don't know. He tried and failed. You know? Is there any more true epitaph to any of us? But maybe just a dot, 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 but in the hands of God. Hang strong. All right. Here's one. More specific to FOF. Has consideration been given to the older generation of FOF? The music and the new website with its pics are great, but seem to be geared to a younger population. There are some who are feeling overlooked and are kind of leery about what else is changing at FOF. And I guess what I can say is I hear you and I understand how scary that can be. You know, we all kind of come to families or cities or towns or homes or churches or whatever, and we like it how it is. And then when it starts to change, it can feel like it's eroding some of our, our stability and it makes us nervous or afraid or am I going to like it? Am I going to love it as much? I, I hear you. Look, I don't know if you're speaking for yourself in the third person, if you're really in conversation or if you're truly trying to speak on behalf of someone else. If you're speaking for yourself, you don't have to be afraid of that. You're not going to be judged in that and I'd love to talk with you about it. And if you're speaking on behalf of someone else, I'd encourage you to encourage them not to talk to you, but to come talk to me because we'd love to talk to him and help him out. But maybe just some things to kind of walk through. You know, in 2007, we did a project here called Chapter 2 where we renovated the entire building into this coffeehouse environment. And it was interesting because we got the exact same response. People going, it feels like it's being geared towards like a younger generation. It feels like it's been like... We're forgetting our old people and trying to do young church in a new way. And I simply want to ask you this. Those of you who are over the age of 50 or even 60, do you like the coffee house? And the reality is I found that most do. No, not all did and some left. But you know what else I found? It had nothing to do with age. I know 20-year-olds. This isn't hypothetical who when it comes to church are high liturgical, traditional, old school folks, and they love it. They love the way that church was done in the 1950s, even though they weren't alive for it. But they love that, that history and that architecture. They love that, 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 that vibe that it gives. They love that style. And I know 80-year-olds who love the contemporary movement. It's been odd, like even in just some of the lighting we've done on stage, you know, I'd always kind of like, how's that going to be? I have gotten more positive feedback from our 50 plus crowd than those who are under. So I don't encourage you to think about this as age as much as style or perspective. I want to see Fellowship of Faith always be a multi-generational church, young and old, coming together, learning from each other. But I will say this. And I say this as one who is closer in age to 65 than 25. I think every church always has to be keeping its primary eye on the younger generations. Because I believe the call of those of us who are now old, and I'm among you. Not really old like you, but I'm, I'm old. <laughs> You know, I was like laughing with my family the other day going, it's like so weird. I have adult age children. Do you ever like, 
Like old people, do you, do you ever have this moment where you're like, I don't feel old enough to have adult age children, right? I've come to believe that the call on every older generation is to be building into the younger generation. That our call is not to finally get there to retire so it can be about me and my comfort. I think that's a lie propagated by American culture. God's call on those of us who are aging and older is to take the wisdom that we have found to raise up the younger generation and pour into them. And I want to see FOF always be about that. So, oh, I so appreciate the question and so respect the fear that you have, and I, and I so understand it. But I just encourage you that I don't think you have to be afraid. And I think if you're patient and have an open mind and dare to trust your leaders, which I know sounds self-serving, but I mean it, you're going to like what you see. And if you're wrestling, come talk to me. I'd love to help walk you through it. Thank you. Those are the kind of good, raw, honest questions. I love to see. This clock, I hate it. It's beating me up. You're at home. You're like, I gotta go mow the lawn. Get on with it. So, I am going to take one more, maybe two, and we'll call it a day. Why is there so much divorce in the churches? It's heartbreaking. And this sounds like such a generic answer, but it's because we're sinners. It's why there's so much dysfunction in every relationship. And it's strange how something which a hundred years ago was so condemned in the church today is so accepted. Is that good or is that bad? Maybe both. Maybe at one level the church has become too easy with divorce. I don't want to be with them anymore, just whatever. Don't fight, don't work, don't. Maybe, but at the other hand, the amount of broken people and broken relationships who are going through horrible times, being able to find the compassion of the church. Is there any place they should find more of it? Yeah, but it's hard. And for those of you who are contemplating, I encourage you, short of your safety, do everything in your power to fight and work to make it work. To those of you who are recovering, know God loves you and his mercy is infinite and he knows your pain and the tough choices you had to make and seek him in that healing process. For those of you who feel like you're going it alone, don't go it alone. Regroup with other people. Try to get perspective. Even if your spouse isn't willing yet, it's something so important and could be so good. But it's tough. It's tough. I hear you. And let me close off with this. Why are some people at church, friendly at church, but won't say hi at Walmart? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you're talking about fellowship of faith or if you're talking about a different church context. Um, I, I can't speak to the specific of where or who, but let me throw a couple of things out there. One, don't be quick to judge. A, maybe you saw them and they didn't see you. 
There's many times I find myself in Walmart and I'm kind of focused on other things and you might walk right past me and you're out of kind of like this surrounding so I'm not kind of connecting the dots. How much more for people that have more casual relationships? So, so maybe cut them a little slack, the same kind of slack that you'd want them to cut to you. Number two, maybe it's like, no, they saw me. It was eye to eye. Still be patient. You don't know what they're going on that day. You don't know what kind of bad news they received that day, what they're angry about that day, what they're struggling with, what they're trying to remember, how everything went wrong and they're just trying to get in and out and they're flustered with everything else and they don't mean to be rude, but it's coming across that way. So if someone's offended you that way, I'd say, hey, just actually go up to them and go, hey, why'd you say hi to me? Don't be a jerk about it, but just call them and I bet they'll laugh and go, oh, I'm sorry, you know, or something like that. Three, sometimes people are insecure. They just are. Maybe church is a safe place, and if they're a leader of the church or wearing a name tag, it feel like they have permission that they can talk to you, but, ooh, I see you in a foreign place. Like, none of us really outgrow junior high at some level. And maybe be gentle with the own insecurity that they might be facing, not because they don't like you, but just because they're just awkward human beings, and a lot of us are. And four, honestly, maybe they just don't like you. <laughs> and maybe you've ticked them off and you don't even realize it or who knows what. That's a reality of life. And you know what God says to do? This is back to Matthew chapter 5. Leave your gift at the altar. Go. Be reconciled with your brother immediately. If you feel that there is someone who has offended you or if you're wondering if you've offended them, you pick up the phone, you get on email, you send the text right now. Or the next time you discreetly can do it here, you pull them aside and go, hey, if I did something to hurt you or offend you, I saw the other day and I feel like you blowed me off, be vulnerable, be humble, have the guts to do it. Most people don't have the guts to do it. They'd rather just stew in their anger and concoct fantasies about what the reason might be. That's not the way of Jesus. No, the way of Jesus is hard and it's messy and it's often confusing, but he invites you down that path and the times that I've done that, I have found I was usually making far more of something than it was in reality and was no longer carrying around that anger anymore. Go for it. God believes in you. You can do it.